Thank you so much. Wow. Thank you so much. Um, definitely just honored to be with you all. Thank you, Pastor, for that incredible introduction and for all of the leadership, um, the invitation to be here, all of your incredible generosity and hospitality today. I'm deeply honored to join you this Sunday. Overwhelmed, actually, a little bit. Really amazed at you all. Thank you so much. Well, Today, I just want to thank also the tech team who made my request. I love to preach with slides, and this is kind of how I preach at my home church. And they did it, and they made it so I even have a little wand here, and I don't have to say next slide, which is my least favorite thing to say. So I just want to be just thank you to the entire worship tech team. Thank you so much. None of this happens without them, and they only hear from you when things go wrong. Um, so we want to make sure when everything's going very right that we say thank you so much. All right, we are joining in to your Meaning of Creation series, and you've been hanging out a little bit with the book of Ecclesiastes, and I've been invited to tell you a little bit about my journey and my thought process and the way that I engage the issue of the climate crisis that is all around us. So this is me at the blue zone of COP26 in Glasgow, and I am just as surprised as you to see myself standing there. So I'm just going to share a little bit about how I got there. I got there because of probably a whole bunch of events, but primarily in October of 2017, uh, we were hanging out in the evening. It was about two or three in the morning, and my then three-year-old uh, woke me up, and I happened to glance at my phone just to see the time, like, why am I awake at this ungodly hour, and saw that there was a horrible fire um, that had taken hold in my hometown of Santa Rosa where I have a lot of friends, but also my parents. And I thought, oh, that looks, you know, first you just see fire and you go, oh, okay, you know, there's a fire I'll look at, and maybe I should pay attention to that. And this fire, um, this is the road out of my parents' uh, neighborhood that evening. Um, this fire moved 12 miles in four hours. And it devastated my hometown. And when I started calling my parents frantically to say, you need to get out, the power had gone out. There had been a high wind event, so the power had been knocked down, so their phone lines were out, and the phones were very difficult. And I sat there in my house at 3 in the morning on my knees, crying and begging to God that they would still be alive by the time the sun rose. And we finally got in contact with each other, and I'm like, you have to get out of the house. And my dad, who is a retired lieutenant colonel in the Marine Corps and is not um, easily swayed by his daughter, said, I'm sure it's fine, and opened the front door and saw the flames on the hills. And then they got in their two cars, which I was like, dear God, why? Why now do I have to worry about two different locations of people? And they followed each other out in what is typically a two-hour drive to get to my house um, in Silicon Valley. It was um, not until about 11 that morning that I saw them. So it changed everything for me very quickly. It, their home survived, but many homes didn't. Um, this was Coffee Park, and you can see the devastation. The entire neighborhood's gone. It jumped over the 101 and took out this 
neighborhood. The captain on duty that night was a childhood friend of mine. We grew up together. Santa Rosa was not like wine country and cool when I was growing up. It was um, a large agricultural <laughs> industry in a nice small town. I went to high school with the same people I went to preschool with. And Captain Craig Schwartz, who retired after this event, said it was the scariest night of his life. And that trauma of that event, even though I wasn't even there, stayed with me. And I couldn't shake it. And we started, I'm sure you did too, you had a quick response. I know that here in Berkeley you are not unfamiliar with the risk of fire as well. Um, but it was something different this time to see something move that quickly. Um, then again, in 2020, this time, the red, fire, the red flag event came up and I said, Mom, Dad, you need to come and stay with me. And my dad said, no, this is ridiculous, we're fine. And I said, Dad, um, you, I'm just gonna take you to Monterey. That's just my, we're, you're not leaving because of a red flag event, obviously that would be ridiculous. I would just like you to come with me to Monterey. And that night, at 11 o'clock at night, again. Same, same devastating climate-induced fire that again forced them to the second mandatory evacuation that they had had in as many years and they were not able to return again to their home, which by grace still stands. Um, they weren't able to return again for another few weeks. And when this fire hit, friends and family that were there said things like, it's like God has no sympathy. We have no hope here anymore. Um, the Oakmont residents that are just adjacent to my family's neighborhood, these are senior citizens. These are people who may or may not have transportation or drive and they are evacuated yet again into evacuation centers again. And those who survived the Santa Rosa fires felt as if it was just all happening again. And now this is what we live with. We live with something called the fire season. Every year, beginning about May, we live with this reality. And my parents aren't relocating. They, I don't know if you know this, it's sort of expensive to live here. Um, they don't have anywhere to go. And we now find in this fire season that things like Stanford, University of Stanford's done a, a study that the wildfire smoke has permanently changed the DNA in our children so that in 20 to 30 years, our children will be much more susceptible to cancer, to heart, and to lung disease. This is already proven to be true. The DNA has changed as a result of their exposure to this toxic smoke. And now we look out, and I know, Pastor, when you probably were meeting outside during COVID, you also had to look at either COVID rates to see if you could meet inside, and also air quality rates to see if it would be safe to meet outside. And we start to have a very different reality, and they've already discovered that the water is unsafe in Santa Rosa as a result of the toxicity that's in the soil. I don't think we know quite what we're managing and dealing with anymore. In the entire 20th century, only five fires burned more than 100,000 acres. But in 2020 alone, we had 11 such fires. This is an unprecedented difference. It is not simply a wildfire. It is climate-induced and climate-fueled as a result of the crisis in our world. So that's what led me to be following Catherine Hayhoe on Twitter when she 
and I, I saw her resource for you guys in one of the things, which she posted, hey, anybody interested, go to the Christian Climate Observers Program. And I said, oh, somebody should do this. So I turned to my husband. I said, you should go. You should do that. He's like, I, I'm not going to go. And then I turned to uh, a friend of ours, and I said, you should go. And he's like, I'm not going to go. And I'm like, well, somebody needs to go. So I immediately, it was the last day, and I just very quickly filled out the application on my phone while we sat around the table at dinner. And shocked to be accepted to the program um, because I don't know about I went to divinity school right um, I'm an activist when I the gospel presses me to be an activist but primarily I like to preach and teach about the Bible and it turns out when you're talking about climate care you're preaching and teaching about the Bible so it ended up being a good fit, but that's how I showed up outside of that meeting place and met some wonderful people, including um, William Morris, who will be here with you later this afternoon. The United Nations, some time ago in 1994, created a framework for this crisis. We've known it's going on for a long time. It's actually not news. It's not new news. In fact, the developing world has been crying out for a long time. The global church has been crying out for decades regarding this climate crisis. So in 1994, the UN put together the Framework Convention on Climate Change, and there are 197 countries that have ratified this convention, and they're called parties to the convention. And their charge is to prevent, and you might go, it's too late, dangerous human interference with the climate system. And they have an annual meeting every year called the Conference of the Parties. And when we talk about things like the Paris Agreement, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about the Conference of the Parties, the COP, that has this annual gathering. And the nations come together and they make, unfortunately, non-binding commitments. It's not a treaty. So sometimes, as Greta said last year, it just sounds like blah, blah, blah. And they make these non-binding agreements on climate change to report on their nationally determined contributions, and the next one's coming up in Egypt. So in case you don't ever get to go to one, let me just show you a little bit of what the exhibit hall looks like. There's um, different NGOs and nonprofit opportunities where they're kind of raising each nation that's participating, gets to have a big booth and talk about their efforts and what they're trying to do um, in order to address climate climate change. And when we showed up, the U.S. had a significant credibility gap. We still do, but under the previous administration, the U.S. had pulled out of the Paris Agreement, and so we had not really attended or sent any delegation over those years prior to Glasgow, and this was the first time we had been back in some time without just, with a booth, right, without just sending a handful of people. And during one of those years, we sent, the, the delegates that we sent were um, clean coal executives, and um, it was true that everybody stood up and turned their back. So the U.S. has a credibility problem, but... They really, I don't know if you remember, but when President Biden was elected, he immediately appointed John Kerry as the climate envoy. And so they made a huge effort. They had two booths. They had quotes up on. They were handing out pins. America's all in. We're back. They had a U.S. state center. Pete Buttigieg and Catherine Hayhoe had an incredible conversation about climate and faith, by the way, and how the Department of Transportation tries to solve these problems. It's available on YouTube if you want to see some of their amazing quotes. 
And most stirring and moving were some prophetic calls to action as indigenous voices and First Nation voices and global voices were finally centered in this conversation. And it was refreshing to hear and to see these voices come into the center. Brianna Fuen from Samoa says, we are not drowning, we are fighting. And as they continued to call out, and I highly commend Vanessa Nakate to you, who is a Ugandan climate activist and has written an amazing book called A Bigger Picture and has now just been appointed uh, as a delegate uh, to the UN. She stood up and said things like, we cannot adapt to starvation. We cannot adapt to extinction. We cannot adapt to the lost cultural heritage and to the lost biodiversity. And she led that call for loss and damage. The Kenyan delegation stood up and said in the national informal stock-taking moment, we bleed when it rains and we cry when it doesn't rain. Trying to keep global warming to a 1.5 statistic is not a statistic, it's a matter of life and death. And already at the time of the conference, 26 million people in the Horn of Africa are facing starvation as a result of the climate crisis. And more today. I don't know if you and I can fully appreciate what it means to cry when it rains and to cry when it doesn't rain. Because when it rains, it doesn't rain just a sprinkle. It rains torrential flood rains that destroy everything. But if it doesn't rain, you can't love either. So this has produced in many of us, has it not, even with the news this week, the devastating news coming out of Florida and all over the world, a lot of eco-anxiety. Anybody? Yeah? Where you kind of think, I'm so overwhelmed, I don't know what to do about this, what can I do, I'm one person, we're one church, we're one nation, how do we make a difference? And I think, I just want to let you know that, that the Bible understands this eco-anxiety, and in fact I think this is what Solomon is talking about a bit if Solomon is the author of Kohelet, of Ecclesiastes. So these are the verses that were sort of carved out for us this Sunday, and I find them a little bit um, of a downer. Is that okay to say? <laughs> Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, wickedness, in the place of righteous, wickedness there too. And I said to myself, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for he has appointed a time for every matter and for every work. And I said to myself, with regard to humans, that God is testing them to show that they are but animals. For the fate of humans and the fate of animals is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and humans have no advantage over the other animals. All is hevel, breath, vanity. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are practiced under the sun. Look, the tears of the oppressed with no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors, there was power with no one to comfort them. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. Anyone feel encouraged? You're going to get that. That's going on a bumper sticker, right? You're like, this is the verse I can't wait to share with the world. Dead people are happier than me, right? 
Um, so I don't know if you've ever uh, seen the sketch comedy show out of Israel. It's called The Jews Are Coming, Hayudim Ba'im. And they take some fun little Bible stories and they, because there's a fairly biblically literate community watching these sketch comedy. It's like SNL. And this is the picture of the author of Kohelet. It's Solomon in a goth stage. And his parents... <laughs> come, Bathsheba and David are like, come on, son, why you got to be so down all the time? He's like, it's, you know, and he's just got the whole charcoal eyeliner. He's like, this is who I am, right? So they're trying to convince him to, to lighten it up. And that's how I feel a little bit, whether or not, again, Solomon is the author. Um, and interestingly, just this last week, some archaeologists suggested that as a result of Solomon's brutal building project, an expansive kingdom, he created an environmental disaster and overforested and over-resourced everything. So maybe that's why he thinks everything's bad, right? If he's the author, he did it. He's in charge of a lot of that chaos. No, he's super wise too. It's okay. Um, all right. Here's what I'd like to say this morning. Let's not give in to despair. It's easy to be overwhelmed. It's easy to feel like this next season will just be another fire season. It's easy to feel as though there's nothing we can do, but it's not true. And I'm going to center the voices of people who are most impacted by the climate crisis and suggest that if they aren't giving up, how dare we? How dare we give up? Tina Stegg, who I'm really excited, just followed me on Twitter this morning. So I'm really going, I'm like, wow, I feel like, a, I feel like I've got a hero in front of me. She's the climate envoy of Marshall Islands. And she stood up in front of everyone and said, I can't accept failure. Failure is accepting that perhaps there isn't a future for my country. Failure is not an option for her. She's watching her country sink. And it's not an option. And she's not giving up to the anxiety and the overwhelming situation, she's still fighting. Again, as Brianna from Samoa said, we are not drowning, we are fighting. And the minister from Tuvalu, where we have many sisters and brothers in the church, has said, we are at the forefront of the climate change. It is an existential threat now. It is not fiction. It is not projected to happen in the future. Tuvalu is literally sinking. We must take action now. So let's heed their call. You see, humanity is given a vocation. The Lord God took the human and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to guard it. Leovda ule shomra. That word to work implies that you and I better get busy. There's a job for us to do. There is work for us to do. And the word for guard, shomer, it's to protect. We are to work this to protect it, to guard it. Now, I know your next question is, but don't we get to rule over it? I like that verse more, right? So God said in Genesis 1, let us make humans in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over the cattle and over the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. Well, let me just let you know that dominion does not mean, ruling over does not mean that you get to use it up to whatever way you want. Humans are not the ones inherently sovereign over creation. That's God. We are given the responsibility to rule solely by God's grace. And if we've not done a good job, then we can start doing a better job today. We can do the next right thing. Imagine if you were in a 
kingdom, a monarchy, and the king or queen said, hey, I get to rule over you. I get to have dominion over you, which means I get to abuse you and string out, wring out every bit of resource. I get to make you do whatever I want, and it doesn't matter if I leave you in a total state of disrepair. That would not be a kingdom any one of us would want to live in. Amen? We have been given charge to take care of this beautiful creation and we are to do it in such a way that honors the creator and the creation in which we live. The welfare of the earth is our welfare, to quote Reverend Dr. Mombeki at the All-African Conference of Churches that was held, he's the head of that, and this conversation was held at the COP. And there he said, yes, I understand that this process is difficult. Yes, I understand that the nations aren't keeping their commitments. Yes, I am frustrated too. Sometimes it does feel blah, blah, blah. But if we didn't even have this, we would have to make it. Because this is the only time in the entire year where people like me and countries like me get to come on the same stage as the world powers and say, we need something. We need you to do better. We care. We need help. So creation care is how we love God and love our neighbors. This is an indigenous activist from Humboldt area, and we bonded over being from both from Northern California. And we talked about how when we love the creation, we are loving our neighbor. Reverend Lennox Yearwood, who's in charge of the Hip Hop Caucus, incredible, incredible leader to listen to and to follow, he says, he talks about how climate justice is racial justice. And he's been fighting this fight since Hurricane Katrina. And he reminds us that 68% of people of color live within 30 miles of a coal-fired power plant in the United States. When Eric Garner yelled as he was being choked by the NYPD, I can't breathe, he was also dying from asthma caused by the toxic air within his community. Climate justice is racial justice. Loving our world and our creation is loving our neighbor. Creation care is neighbor care. And Jesus tells us that this is the number one commandment. He is asked, what is the most important commandment in Mark 12? And then he quotes Deuteronomy and Leviticus, and he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And the second's like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. And later, you know, in Matthew, Jesus will say, and you have to love your enemies. So even if you don't like your neighbor, it doesn't matter. You still have to do this. This is what we're called to do. So is there any hope or have I just made you feel very sad and worried about the entire world? I think there is hope. Unprecedented multi-faith efforts happened just leading up to the COP and with the COP. Encouraged by the UN and also under Pope Francis's leadership, they had every single, a representative from every single faith and tribe available to come and meet. They put together an incredible document that was sent to the UN. The UN put together faith for earth and a call for action that we as people of faith would start to practice what we preach. And start to understand how we live, particularly in the global north, particularly with people who are incredibly resourced and have used more than our fair share. How we live makes a difference in this world. And so there at the COP, we saw eco-synagogues and eco-churches and eco-mosques and green faith initiatives and incredible leaders for the climate vigil. And it was encouraging to be together. Hope is a discipline, and hope is an action, and we cannot give up hope. Because the people who are most significantly suffering need us, need our voice to demand 
insist that they be helped, that they be compensated for the loss and damage of their world. So the developed world promised these nations most impacted $100 billion annually to the developing countries for the adaptation, mitigation, and loss and damage. Guess what? The promise remains unkept. Just $100 billion annually from the entire world for those most impacted. Our military budget is $700 billion. Maybe we could talk to some people about that. We would like that money to go to the people who are most suffering. A significant bit of hope was an like epic, incredible global climate march that went on. This is my daughter and I hanging out. Um, and it went on for hours. And as we were there, I want to give you a little taste. because I felt like nobody was listening to me. And I was so frustrated that nobody was listening. Look at all of you guys listening. Thank you very much. And I got to present letters from school kids who were saying I can't go outside and play for a month at a time. And I got to present those letters directly to Jesse Young, who is a Californian as well. And he is the envoy, he's the assistant to, the, to John Kerry. I got to get some people to listen. And we're starting to see some change. We're starting to see some significant change. It's not too late and you can do something locally. This is what we're doing locally. Um, I got back from the conference and just could not continue to live with the reality that when those fire events and smoke events happen, my daughter who has asthma, I'm able to bring her inside and give her an air purifier and take good care of her, but I know that my neighbors don't have that same access. So I met with Violet Wolf-Siena of Climate Resilient Community. She used to be the lead negotiator for Samoa, and now she lives in Sunnyvale and runs an incredible uh, nonprofit in East Palo Alto, uh, working with the Pacific Islander community and the others in that area to get East Palo Alto ready. And she started the Breath of Air campaign. So we have now raised enough money to provide air purifiers and get safe air. You can see the pollution that is in the poor areas is the darker color. And then when the rich people start coming in, West Menlo Park, the air gets better. This isn't something that only happens once a year when there's a fire event. This is an ongoing every single day event. So now we have air purifiers providing in our community. What might you amazing people do here? I know something beautiful and creative and amazing is going to come out. How you love your neighbors locally and how we can love them globally. So let's leave with this. The climate crisis in 10 words. You guys ready? You can say this. You might not feel like an expert and maybe you can't say yet that you've been able to go to the UN event or some other big climate event, but all you have to know are these 10 words. You ready? It's real. Say it. It's real. It's us. Experts agree. It's bad. There's hope. 
If you need more hope, read Catherine Hayhoe. She's a Jesus follower, and she got into this business because she knows she needs to love her neighbor. Keep talking about it. Keep listening. Keep learning. Keep reading. Make lifestyle changes when you can. Invite others to participate and join you. Keep dreaming. Keep hoping. Keep acting. Strategize. Plan. Act. And pray. The alternative is not a livable alternative. Hope is our only action. Let me pray for you. All-powerful God, you are present in the vast universe and in the smallest of creatures. You embrace with tenderness your creation and call it very good, gifting it to us to guard and to steward, to tend the garden as you tended the garden. We confess that we have neglected our responsibility to care and protect our world and one another. We have stripped the earth of its resources. We have polluted our streams, rivers, oceans, and air. And those most vulnerable in our world pay the highest cost. Open our eyes, O oh Lord, to those suffering as a result of our ecological abuse. As we witness fires, severe heat and cold, droughts, floods, extinctions, and food insecurity, may each crisis awaken our souls to action rather than despair. May the cries of those suffering not go in vain. Help us to bring justice and mercy to the marginalized and oppressed who most severely and unfairly suffer as a result of this crisis. Touch the hearts of those of us who look only for gain at the expense of our earth. Bring healing to our lives that we may protect the world and not prey on it, that we may sow beauty, not pollution and destruction, that we may seek life and hope, justice and compassion for all. Fill us with peace that we may live as sisters and brothers. Teach us to discover the worth of each thing. Be filled with awe and contemplation to recognize that we are profoundly united with every creature as we journey towards your infinite light. Pour out upon us the power of your love and light that we may protect life and beauty. You have given us a garden, O Lord. May we not leave our children a desert. Amen.